The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, quit trying to set your laser printer to stun and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 236 with guest Eric Evans, recorded live Tuesday, April 24th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter. And now, bringing the just-in-time team system class with Joel Semeniuk, on-site for your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, providing the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who still denies he's the love child of alien invaders, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, Lawrence Ryan. This is Carl Franklin, and uh, you're listening to .NET Rocks, of course. We're coming to you from the middle of the week. Thursday. This is our Thursday show. Richard Campbell out there in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hey, Richard. Hey, it's Thursday on this coast, too. What do you know? <laughs> so, uh, man, we uh, have had some great shows lately and a lot of good feedback as well. And uh, DNR TV is also going strong. We've been doing some great stuff. I don't know if you've been watching. I have been. And you, you're getting deep into the shows here. What is it? 63? Yep. Yep, and uh, we've been doing uh, these the series with John Paul Boudou from ThoughtWorks, uh, and uh, he's been going through a series on patterns. And we got this email from Jeremy Osborne uh, after the first one that he did on patterns. Uh, and he says, hey, Carl and Richard, I just got through watching the first design patterns episode with John Paul Boudou on DNRTV.com. This is really great stuff. I'm a regular subscriber to JP's blog, so I was already familiar with his style of development. I can't wait to see the other episodes. By the way, JP needs to write a book around this topic. I'm sure there are a lot of C-sharp developers out there that would find it beneficial. By the way, I'm really enjoying the new release pace for the show. Not only has the number of shows gone up, but the quality has remained the same, if not gotten better. Thanks. Wow. Nice email. Bert. (laughs) He signed it Bert. He signed it, Bert. Which is, oh, well, okay. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Okay, Bert. Jeremy, Bert. Jean-Paul's such a young guy, but great thinking around this stuff. Well, yeah, and, you know, his MO is that he doesn't want to explain it in a purely academic format, Right. you know? He wants to show it uh, around everyday solutions, which is, you know, what he's always done. He also did the uh, strategy pattern and the monostate pattern. Um. In, in this last one. So it's really good stuff. And what do you got coming up? Oh, we got even more patterns. We've got some stuff with uh, Scott Hanselman on debugging coming up. Uh, some stuff with Don XML. He's going to be showing off some of the tools that he's written. Uh, some just great stuff. DNR TV is, you know what? Uh, we're also starting to encourage people to watch DNR TV together at lunchtime. During the week. Oh, right. As a lunch and learn. A lunch and learn. Yeah, exactly. And we're going to even be putting up a, a website where we can help uh, people schedule these things and p- send out email reminders. Hey, you know, there's a lunch and learn going on in the cafeteria today at noon, whatever. But uh, it's really great when a bunch of developers can have lunch and watch a hour-long development show 
and uh, it's engaging and you know thought provoking and also conversation stimulating. I right, I guess that's the best asset about having a bunch of people sitting together to watch it is really the discussion afterwards. And hey, it's free. Yeah, can't argue with the price. Yeah. I got an email for you, a bit of a long one, but it's one I've been meaning to read for a while. I've, okay. had, I've had been holding it in reserve till I could answer it appropriately. Let me read it to you. Hi, Carl and Richard. First, let me get the obligatory congratulations on your show out of the way. And then he doesn't give us any, just moves on. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I'm a senior.net software architect in Auckland, New Zealand. More homeland stuff. What yeah. do I know about that? I've been an avid listener for about a year now, and I find your show very informative, and it's opened my eyes, or should that be ears, to a wide variety of topics I never thought would interest me. As an architect, though, I feel it's my duty to be well-informed about as much relevant technology as possible. Anyway, the show is great, and I especially enjoy the doubling up of shows per week of late, especially since my commute is now longer. So I guess he's taken our advice and moved further out of town. This leads to the main point of my email. I've recently started a new job with a company after being effectively self-employed for a number of years and largely working by myself on projects. In my previous life, all of my data access was done with an ORM. I've used several over the years, including Hibernate in Java since about 2003 when it was really new, Hmm. but the main one I used until recently was LLBL Gen Pro. Having started with my new company, I'm now back in the mode of doing data access using standard Microsoft-provided technologies, basically stored procedures and data sets. It's been quite a transition back to the old way of doing things, but it's also made me think about ORMs a little more. Hmm. Given your upcoming ORM smackdown, I thought I'd do a little reading about what Ted Neward was saying. I looked up his blog and had a read. I must say that he makes some interesting points, but I think you have to consider the context in which an ORM solution will be used. Clearly, he's talked about enterprise-class systems and that ORMs might not be appropriate there. But for many other systems, especially in ISVs where the developers own the database, they provide a lot of benefit that can make developers much more productive. Yeah. Yeah, if you don't have a DBA on staff... An ORM is probably going to write read a SQL than your average developer. Hmm. Back to my current position. In the system I'm architecting at the moment, I considered whether I could use and Hibernate. I downloaded it and gave it a try. I have to say, even though I'd used Hibernate previously, getting started with and Hibernate wasn't easy. And while it's a great tool, I think the average developer would easily get tripped up. And this is the main problem. Most of the current crop of ORM tools require developers to be rocket scientists to be able to use them effectively. Hmm. Even more importantly, most developers come to ORM with an existing database, which they then want to create a set of classes for, and then round trip. And Hibernate doesn't really support this, so it's basically a non-starter. LLBL Gen, though, does take the approach of connecting to your database, generating entity classes for you, and letting you use them in a reasonably foolproof way. Right. You guys should get Franz Buma on the show and have a talk with him about it. Even given this negative experience, I think that the ORM argument has already been decided. Microsoft is developing D-Link, which is effectively an ORM. Yep. I think it's kind of a stretch for D-Link, but okay. Uh, Once it's provided by Microsoft, it will be officially sanctioned and will become mainstream. From the initial play with it, it seems like it will do the full round trip from database to classes to having the queries integrated directly into the language. Hmm. Then we will really see ORM take off. I do wonder about the pain, though, of all the legacy .NET systems that have datasets scattered throughout their code. Hmm. So good luck with the SmackDown. It will be an interesting show. And finally, keep up the great work. I love your style, even though you make me shout at you sometimes. <laughs> Sincerely, Greg Shearer. Dude, don't shout at your MP3 player. It's not listening. <laughs> Greg, we're we're happy that we make you shout. That's, <laughs> that means you're engaged and thinking about it. Yeah, can't argue with that. And I must admit, I received about a dozen emails, not the same as Craig's, but saying that the same essential thing, right. LLBL Gen and Franz Buma have some significant input into this ORM space. So I chased down Franz and have had him commit to recording a show with us, which will be published right at the end of May. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. So I'm doing my job too. You send me email wanting something, I'll do it. Excellent. Well, we're just going to briefly run through all the links for the the, sh- the code camps and shows and stuff that we want to mention here. Right. Right. 
Starting with three code camps on May 19th, you got the West Michigan Day of .net, shrinkster.com slash N1H, the Philly.net code camp, shrinkster.com slash OI7, and the Front Range code camp in Denver, Colorado, shrinkster.com slash OQO. Finally, there's a Raleigh code camp on June 23rd, and you can read about that at shrinkster.com slash 017. And of course, DevTeach in Montreal, devteach.com. We'll be, be there next week. Next week. So It's uh, May 14th to 18th in Montreal. And then we'll, of course, be at TechEd June 4th through 8th and uh, in Orlando. Uh, if you want to move to New York City and live rent-free for a year and work with some really fine .NET people, check out shrinkster.com slash kh6. And if you're interested in a great gig in Washington, D.C. for ASP.NET gurus, shrinkster.com slash mmj. All right, Richard, let's uh, introduce Eric Evans. Eric is the author of Domain Driven Design, Tackling Complexity in Software, published by Addison Wesley in 2004. Since the early 1990s, he has worked on many projects, developing large business systems with objects, with many different approaches and many different outcomes. This book is a synthesis of that experience. It presents a system of modeling and design techniques that successful teams have used to align complex software systems with business needs and to keep projects agile as systems grow large. Eric now leads Domain Language, a consulting group which coaches and trains teams applying domain-driven design, helping them to make their development work more productive and more valuable to their business. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. So here's the story. We had Jimmy Nilsson on the show last fall, which apparently is one of your associates. Yes. Well, he wrote a good book about domain-driven design. And and we got a real strong reaction about the show. They really the the listeners were asking for more. Let's just dive into domain driven design and, and your viewpoints on managing complexity. Let's start with what the problem is. All right. So the problem is that we want to build these applications that do more and more complicated things. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's a certain amount of complexity in the technology, and a certain amount of complexity in our kind of uh, the way we end up building things, the sort of incidental complexity or accidental complexity. And then there is the core complexity of the problem itself, that is, the uh, domain itself. So if you're writing some business software, some, let's say, a banking application, well, you're going to have to understand banking, and you're going to have to represent all those little quirks of banking that have evolved over hundreds of years. And that is the domain complexity. Right. And on top of that, you're going to have a particular way that you represent banking. And often we let a lot of things distract us from that core understanding of the domain, including... Uh, our own quirky ideas about these things because we didn't understand what the domain, we mm. don't really understand the domain very well. Mm. And I think banking is a good example of that. Everybody has an opinion about how banking works and should work. Yeah, yeah. and bankers aren't necessarily good software developers and vice versa. I don't know how many times I've been on projects where they reinvent accounting. And other <laughs> 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 it's weird. You know, uh, here's a very highly refined domain model that has been used for a long time. And yet, because programmers don't really like to learn about business stuff, they just kind of, well, you know, they've got a field here that's the amount, um, the balance of something or other. And, you know, it, it is weird, but it's true. People reinvent these things. So... Uh, but but I think that isn't quite the core of the problem. But, well, it's related. But the core of the problem, really, I think, is that in order to address these really tough problems with complicated domains, we have to be primarily focused on that complexity. So instead of focusing on, let's use the tried and true accounting practices that are out there, we're talking about what framework are we going to use and how are we going to integrate web services into these things? 
Yes, and and of course, learning the uh, tried and true accounting is just the beginning, but it's a beginning people don't do. So, of course, uh, that is a, a little atypical example. Accounting is a refined model already, right? And you can use it pretty much as is. It's even uh, curiously kind of transactional. Well, in fact, I think that's probably where the software term transaction came from, would be my guess. Sure. So you put, uh, you know, a credit here and a debit there, and they are an atomic unit. I mean, what could be easier? It's, it's That's why I say it's kind of weird that software people don't just lift uh, accounting every time. I find but, it very hard to justify anybody writing accounting software new again. There's enough stuff out there. Just use it. Well, of course, now the problem, of course, uh, that we highlighted on here is that developers don't have, you know, when it, when a developer goes in for a job, they can't, can they be expected to learn enough about the domain so that they can uh, program from that? Is the is the idea to get better tools for the programmers or is the idea to give the programming tools to people who understand the business model? Well, a lot of people have proposed that what we need is tools that business experts can use to write their own programs. I don't think that works either, because just as the programmers don't know enough about the business to write really good business software, business people are never going to think like programmers either. It isn't. See, I think that what we bring to the table is not primarily our mastery of Java syntax. I think it's a certain way of thinking that we presumably have mastered. Yeah. So we can think in, for example, we know the kind of precision that's needed, the kind of clarity, uh, a certain ability to do appropriate abstraction. We being programmers. We being developers. good software developers. Yeah. Now, obviously, many software developers are not very good at these things, and we've managed to make software development a sort of process where lots of people who are not good at those things nonetheless have lots of work to do. Right. But, but that, I think, is the core value of software developers. And even if you could produce tools that didn't require any overhead of understanding technology, then I think, and I think that would be great, but... I don't think that means you hand those tools to business people. I think it means you hand it to people who would have been programmers, but instead will master the use of that tool for uh, taking business domains and abstracting them into powerful models. Well, let's think about how we do it now, right? The programmer sits down at a whiteboard with the business guy, and you know they try to have a come-to-Jesus meeting, you know? Yeah. And they, That's, that they, is the most valuable part, I think. Right. I mean, that is where the real stuff happens. Unfortunately, that isn't really a very big part of the effort. Yeah, funny that it, I, I find that meeting generally comes about 50% of the way through the development process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after they've discovered that you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, uh, of course, that's a interesting point. They discover you're doing it all wrong, and, and uh, people often leap from there to, we need to get it right the first time. I'm not inclined to think so. I'm inclined to think that uh, we have to pretty much do it wrong the first time, hmm. and because uh, that's part of the learning process. Does it have to happen for every project, or is it just part of the fundamental learning of a developer to recognize, if you haven't done this, you're going to do it wrong? Hmm. I think that uh, if you are working in a domain that you have done a lot of work in before, you'll naturally hit closer to the target. If you have a team that has been working in a particular domain for several years, more or less as a cohesive unit, uh, they're naturally going to hit closer to the mark than a fresh team which has never worked in the domain However, if they are really getting into something deep, if they're getting into something that uh, is maybe even new to this business, then they're not going to get it right the first time either. And I guess there's two whammies here. One is 
how rich is the an experience is the team and how well defined is the domain i mean banking like you said is an anomalous one because it's so well defined or accounting anyway but there yeah, are plenty yeah. of other domains out there that are just not that clear that's right and and those are the by the way the interesting ones i mean and and it isn't you can easily find such stuff in banking once you get beyond uh, the kind of basic mechanical uh, transaction management software that we spend a lot of our time on. But I don't think it's really the future, and I don't think it's really the most interesting uh, application of domain-driven design either. Uh, oh, that stuff's you, been done. Yeah, that stuff's been done and can be done by other techniques, uh, whereas when we get into things like uh, risk assessment or um, different kinds of more sophisticated business decision-making support and that sort of thing, uh, and I'm not talking about AI here or anything. I'm talking about uh, just uh, giving them the kind of ability to manipulate their own information uh, in useful ways that uh, businesses really want to have. Um, Supply chain management, not in terms of just, you know, uh, linking up the, uh, showing the data and stuff, but in terms of actually identifying gaps and things. All of these kind of complicated business problems, which are not as well defined as, as accounting, uh, that's the real challenge. That's the fun part of this. You're like a scientist, you know, in a new in a new scientific field where you don't have a theory yet. That, right. You're out making discoveries and you know developing hypotheses and then tearing them down again. Exactly. And, and it, trying to get that that theory that makes it clear and simple, but you know, still wading in a mass of complicated details. So, right. so I think we pretty much established the pain and the problem. Um, in a perfect world, and of course what we have today isn't perfect, but in a perfect world, how do you see this process unfolding? Look, who, who does what with what technologies or tools or, uh, you know, where, what would be the optimum uh, solution to this problem? Well, I don't really think that I know the optimum solution. <laughs> well, where would you start? But, um, yeah, I think, by the way, that the optimum solution might look a little bit like what we were talking about. If you could imagine tools which were so free of technical clutter that you could contemplate giving it to a business person, but you wouldn't because you would give it to somebody who is really skillful at this kind of you know, theory building and and testing that we were just talking about. And he would work in close collaboration with a business expert. And these two would go exploring together. And, of course, it wouldn't just be two individual people. It would probably be a team with a few of each. Right. These, I think these are the core uh, skills. I think deep understanding of the business. When I talk about domain expert, I'm not saying user. Right. I'm saying domain expert. Of course, he may well be a user as well, uh, but that's uh, not the same as, as the person who has been in a field for a while and understands it at every level. That's a real domain expert. Of I course, think you, you don't always have constant access to such people, but but you are talking about typically senior management, guys who've been throughout the business and have a clear picture of how it operates. Senior management is uh, often those guys are really valuable to domain modeling. It tends to get delegated to other people um, because I think they don't realize how important it is right. and, how, and how valuable their own involvement would be. Um, it isn't a matter of knowing all the details. People get so bogged down when they do business analysis, which is an activity similar to what I'm talking about, yeah. they get very focused on the details. Well, what are the allowed values in this field? Or, uh, 
you know, exactly what are, what are the exact steps in this process? And those, things, those questions have to be answered, of course. And sometimes, too, they can really illuminate the, uh, the model, like uh, in much the way that a scientific experiment has to be extremely specific. You know, you don't uh, do an experiment to see if uh, objects fall at the same rate. You do an experiment that says, well, do cannonballs of two different specific sizes fall at the same rate? And, uh, you know, every experiment has to be specific. Sure. Getting back to the basic concept of beginning at the beginning... Yeah. I keep seeing the room with the big table and covered in whiteboards. Is there really a better tool out there today <laughs> than six guys in a room with whiteboards arguing through the model? You know what always happens, too, is that people throw in so much chaff that doesn't need to be there. You know, that's separating out the, the real information from the extraneous BS is often just a challenge in and of itself, Right. That is true, um, separating all that extraneous information. And yet, um, I don't like to pre-filter too much because I find that identifying and filtering that is part of the, uh, part of the modeling process. You, you have to develop what I call a knowledge-crunching process where you have a team capable of taking in a huge amount of somewhat messy information and efficiently sifting it and rearranging it in myriad ways until they they get very good at at filtering out the relevant parts and composing it into useful arrangements because if you over filter you get into the situation that teams are when they have a business analyst between them and the true domain experts, they end up with uh, models which reflect the pre-digested view of the business analyst. They will never develop something that pierces through those preconceptions. Right. You can only do that if you get the kind of unadulterated view and that comes with a certain amount of background noise. Right. It's always going to have those dips into depth. Every time you touch a pain point of one of these guys, they're going to go on for a while. Yeah. yeah. And I also find that you have the person whose sole purpose in life is to come up with a new paradigm, you know, <laughs> and shift everybody's thinking. We're going to change the world. Yeah, shift yeah. everybody's thinking when you're when you're trying to focus on... I don't know. Maybe I remembered that from some meetings that I've been in before. Yes. It's like, can we just focus on what we're doing here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the keys, by the way, is, um, is focus. And by that, I really mean that uh, I think one of the mistakes that we've made in the past with modeling, and I definitely include myself in this one, is that we've used it too much. Really? And yeah, too much, too broadly. <clears throat> We've tried to model everything. And I think now, this is not an opinion I've always held, but it's an opinion that I have become more and more convinced of over the years, that uh, we should use modeling as a kind of a special tool that is good for certain things. And what it's good at is those little knots of complexity, and particularly when those knots of complexity are in really important areas. So if you were uh, doing a banking application and there were some difficulties involved, let's say, in, I don't know, printing checks and... Uh, interacting between the check printer and the system that exports the actual amount of money being printed. Now, since my mind works that way, if they assign me to work on this, I'm sure I would start to create a model of check printing and a model of 
of how uh, of the necessary payments and how those things relate. And this would start to happen in my mind. But I don't think it adds a great deal of value, hmm. uh, at least probably not. That Because it's not within the core where doing check printing in a more elegant way is not going to change that business. It's not going to increase the profits of the bank. It's not going to improve the user experience, the, the business, their customers' experience. But on the other hand, if we're talking about the part of, some part of the software that sifts through factors that might determine whether or not to make a loan, <clears throat> now we're in the core of the bank's business. Right, you're touching on real revenues. And we're saying... Now, in this part, there's also complexity. There are things that are more important and less important. There are things that might be relevant to this loan, irrelevant to other loans. We start to develop a model of how different factors affect the risk level of loan. Now, granted that um, we're right here at the edge of of whether of of uh, the business right business versus software is not always such a clear line. And that's where the greatest value comes, I think. So I guess what I'm saying is if you uh, take a tool uh, like domain modeling and you try to use it for everything, you will spread your efforts so thin that you will never quite reach the level because the thing is that in order to be useful, a domain model has to be pretty good, and it has to be pretty clean. Right. And not everything's going to be clean. Not everything's going to be good. Not in a big software system. That just no, isn't going to happen. There's always going to be some ugliness somewhere. There's always going to be a lot of ugliness in a lot of places. And if you have no way to focus to to sort of separate the mess from one part that you know is critical and say we will model this part carefully and the other parts well we can outsource those parts so we can just hack them you know with the with whatever time we've got left and we establish some way of creating a boundary between those different parts so are you ready for the big news Telerik is taking the wraps off four new product updates. RAD controls for ASP.NET, RAD controls for WinForms, the first official version of the Telerik reporting tool, and a brand new suite codenamed RAD controls Prometheus. And you guys think I don't sleep. Telerik's tools have always been great, but I think this time they've outdone themselves. Well, here are the details. Prometheus is built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET Ajax, and it'll become the successor of RAD controls for ASP.NET. Just as ASP.NET Ajax will be the future of ASP.NET, RAD controls Prometheus represents the future direction of all new Telerik development tools. This new suite of controls will also pave the way for seamless integration with Microsoft Silverlight, formerly WPFE. The WinForm suite aims for the stars with powerful new grid, chart, and tree view controls. For me, it seems like a major player on the WinForms market. Another intriguing addition to Telerik's portfolio this spring is Telerik Reporting. The product introduces a new level of development experience, which Telerik collectively calls Easeability, a naturally intuitive mouse-only approach to generating Windows, Web, and PDF reports. And if that's not enough, go to www.telerik.com to check out what's new with Telerik's renowned RAD controls for ASP.NET. So you're obviously describing um, a process that's very sort of delicate and even maybe a bit ethereal. Um, What are some of the biggest mistakes you see people making when they sit down to you know, when when the process starts, at the beginning of the process, or even anywhere in the process, where do you, where do you see the mistakes being made mostly? There are a variety. Uh, well, of course, as I was just saying, one of the mistakes is to spread your efforts too thin. Sure, too. right. 
And that can happen creepingly, you know, because you've you've focused, let's say, you said, yeah, this is the important part, but then at the border of that, there's this other part, and boy, it would be neater if we had that part. Sometimes that really makes a difference, because sometimes you've drawn the line in a bad place. So one of the mistakes people make is taking on too much. Another is um, being afraid to change things. I think um, once you have a model or even a boundary, and if you're afraid to move that boundary, because let's say you, in your early naivete, you drew the boundary right through an area of critical complexity. So now you're dealing with sort of half of a problem. That's a lot harder. So you need to redraw those boundaries. Likewise, you've got a model. And now you realize with the maturity of having worked on a project for several months or even a couple of years, maybe, you you see deeper. But everyone's used to this model, and it'd be scary to change the software that much. And so people get stuck. And I think that a model that gets that far out of touch with your insights is not really serving the value that a model ought to serve. So if you're going to commit to modeling, if you're going to take on all that expense, you ought to get something for it. And that means focusing it in an area where it will really matter instead of just making an elegant version of something that would have been perfectly satisfactory if it had been done in an inelegant way. It also means continuing the evolution uh, when your new insights come so that you don't have a model that is actually a reflection of the way you thought of this problem two years ago. Right. You've got to refactor the model to keep it up with the current thinking. Yes. Because that thinking is going to exist no matter what. The thinking will exist. That's the true model. And then if your software is based on some outdated model, in fact, it's an anchor. It's no longer um, an asset. Of course, uh, you can This is how um, software becomes obsolete, because you didn't keep it moving forward with the new thinking. That's true. And, of course, uh, it's cost-benefit trade-off. It may be that you say, well, this is uh, true. It's getting out of date. But on the other hand... This area of software, this part of the software is no longer sort of the bleeding edge of of where we're getting value. Yeah, where our business is now focused. And so just as I was saying before, you have to focus and you have to say, well, then, refining the model in that area is no longer the priority. Let's this new area. And in effect, we've said this old area is either a legacy system now or Maybe it's not a legacy system, but we're just going to relegate it to, you know, a less uh, fancy process. Sure. To say, put that thing, keep that thing working, but we're going to focus our real modeling energies where the exciting opportunities are. You talk about the use of language in domain modeling. Uh, I like the phrase, one team, one language. What are you really talking about there? Well, um, I see most of the time that there are multiple languages used in different uh, in different ways. You, if you talk to, and and you'll see that people are quite multilingual on projects. So, you see a developer talking to a, another developer, and what you will hear is some kind of somewhat conceptual model of the business mixed with a fairly uh, high-level description of the technology and and application structure. And this language that they have kind of describes those things. And then you hear the same person talking to a business person, and if they... um, if they're fairly good, but not using the ubiquitous language that I talk about in the book, then what you will hear is a whole different language. Now they will shift and they will talk in the business people's native language. Right. They they may have learned enough to talk with the banker um, on banker language terms, but not the same 
thanking language that they use when they talk to other domain experts because what they've done is through their learning about banking, they have adapted it into something that can be used to build software. But that doesn't work very well because then you have one model that the bankers are thinking in and another model that the software people are thinking in when they're not with the bankers. And it's constant translation between the two. And and so people will say, yeah, your model ought to be based on the the banker's language, which is the place I like to start, but it's not where I will probably end up because, and I keep saying bankers, but that's probably not the best example. Um, but it's not where I'll end up because part of the process is taking these kind of unrefined ideas and grinding away at them and refining them into very clean uh, abstractions that can be composed into more complex pieces. And what you'll end up with, ideally, is a model of banking that the that uh, should make perfect sense to bankers. So and, I hear this that you're obviously the developers need to be influenced by the domain, but are you really saying here that ultimately the domain experts have got to be influenced by the developers as well? There's yes. got to be a synthesis between those two languages. That's right. It's a synthesis where um, it's a refinement where together you refine the model of the domain that's being used. Together, you actually come up with a new language which didn't exist before. It's not a technical description of the original um, domain concepts. It's not uh, just uh, your own invention either. It's something you came up with together that has the, the sharp edges that, that we need in order to build software, and yet still makes sense to the business people. You know, the the thing about this is that it, it is almost ethereal, as you said. It's something that most people can't do, quite honestly. And we have, um, and, it, and because it takes, and because it's a bit fragile, this thing we're creating, it actually, uh, you know, I talked about focusing and putting a wall around the part that you're, working on, but to define that wall and maintain it requires special skills, too. And so in the chaos of most projects, uh, with a lot of people thrashing around who don't have these skills, uh, you seldom see it work. Yeah, it sounds like a very challenging way to uh, construct things. And I'm thinking also along the lines of the political elements of this that you you know you're dealing with in theory some fairly senior business people and you're inevitably going to touch on political points and and Carl alluded to this you always end up with the guy in the room that has been wanting to change the paradigm of the company for some time yep. and sees this as an opportunity well i wrote you know about a third of the book is is in the section called strategic design and in fact that's where most of my consulting work is and that is in dealing with these political uh, kind of issues, in dealing with this intersection between how the project is organized and what the goals of the company are. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's tough, and it does involve political and interpersonal issues. Sure. And you're and talking about the anti-corruption layer. I just love that. <laughs> this mechanism to fight back against the disturbing the whole model unnecessarily. Yes, that that's a popular one, that anti-corruption <laughs> layer. I think as uh, if people remember one thing out of the whole strategic design section, it tends to be the anti-corruption layer. Not the unifying an elephant? <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, no, I thought that would be a hit. but uh, <laughs> Well, that presumes ununified elephants. Yes. Well, and, and uh, the thing is that, uh, of course, it's not the elephant that's being unified. It's the model of the elephant that's being unified. Of course, yes. And so yeah. we, we don't have any ununified elephants, but get two people in a room and you've got two models of an elephant. That aren't, yeah, that aren't the same. Yeah. 
another part of your book that really jumped out to me that you hit on early on, and I thought it was very powerful, was the smart UI anti-pattern. Yeah. Do you, you want to dig into that a bit for folks? Because I think it's an important thing to, to tie into how, you know, domain-driven design gets uh, off r- the rails. Yeah. Okay. Well, this smart UI, and I called it an anti-pattern, but within the chapter, I even said that I, I, I'm using that term a little bit uh, context-specifically because uh, there are lots and lots of applications written this way that are um, – that it makes perfect sense to do so. It's part of what I mean when I say modeling doesn't have to be, shouldn't be used for everything. So there's right. a class of problems that uh, basically the easiest way to build these applications, and, and maybe it's an application like uh, you go to the website, you fill out a form, you click submit, and then, you know, something happens. Uh, well, there's no need for all this modeling stuff. And what a smart UI is basically an application where the um, whatever logic the program has is basically uh, incorporated into the same layer of the software that makes the UI. Right. That's the way that uh, I, I would guess that's the way the majority of software is. Well, it's always been that way. We often... Uh, in the certainly in the old school days, we pushed ourselves into this end tier architecture, moving those sorts of things around. But I think inherently, we think in the smart UI model. Well, there is a naturalness to it, and as I say, I think it has its place, and that place may be considerably bigger than the place of modeling. Uh, however, when you start to get really complex behavior, it starts to break down. Right. <clears throat> And so then we go, as you say, to the end tiered architecture, but the tier that the, or really, I would, I, I prefer to say layers because tiers tends to evoke physical separation. And what yeah. I'm really talking about here is logical separation. So the separation of concerns between displaying things on the screen and managing interaction with the user and the uh, logic of, the program, the kind of uh, core domain logic that a program may have. Of course, many programs don't have much, and that's where the smart UI makes perfect sense. But in program, when that complexity starts to increase, then the smart UI breaks down because without the separation of concerns, the overall problem just becomes overwhelming. And uh, that's really the key. I mean, that's why isolating the domain model is a key part of making a domain model work beyond a certain level of complexity. You just uh, can't handle it. Uh, Now, this brings up an interesting idea, which is, I mean, generally speaking, we've talked about domain-driven design being applied at the beginning of the project. But the smart UI model makes sense when you think the scope of the problem is small. So it strikes me that here's an app we built in that model that's just fine, and it's growing. And we're hitting that point of complexity where it's going to break down. And now we want to refactor the thinking on the app and start applying these practices and breaking things down into a more layered approach. I mean, is that even feasible, or is it better to start from scratch? Well, that's an excellent question. I suppose that this is um, the natural... We would like it to work that way. I mean it would be the natural evolution of an application to start out with the smart UI. And then when you hit a certain point, say, oh, we need to move to the um, to a, an isolated domain layer. But the practice, in practice, it's an extremely hard transition. I think that um, with current technology, another thing is that uh, people tend to use different technologies for these approaches. Right. So if you have written it in, um, well, like uh, Visual Basic, for example, is a great application development uh, platform, Um, and it supports the smart UI very well. Right. People people can crank out nice uh, little applications as long as the domain complexity is not 
too great. The trouble is that um, to actually modify a, a um, now what I'm saying may be less true of visualbasic.net, uh, but then uh, I'm not sure that's really the same language at all. No, not really. Uh, yeah, I'm, you wouldn't be alone in saying that either. I mean, .NET really brought us to this environment of layered development. Yeah. So what I'm really talking about is sort of the old type of of Visual Basic. And the thing is that um, it was great for the smart UI, but then once you decide, oh, well, I really need an isolated domain, there was really no place to go. So you had to re-implement. So maybe you would rewrite the application in another language. But, you know, that's a huge investment. Or Now, maybe if you did a smart UI, let's say, in C-sharp, and certainly people do, then in principle, you could migrate to an isolated domain in C-sharp. In practice, it's difficult because it's easier to mix things together than it is to separate them, you know? Right, yeah. Un- yeah, it's very tough to unscramble an egg. Yes. <laughs> and so if you start out with scrambled egg, you, you know, and then you later realize that you wanted your egg over easy, then, uh, well, you'd better just get another egg. Yeah, you're probably better <laughs> off that way. On the other hand, it's not a total loss because you have a ton of domain knowledge already set up. Get in, the chance to get in and work on that whiteboard again, you're probably going to get a better model and a better language around that model than you would have way at the beginning. That's the very point. That's why I always talk about how domain modeling and upfront analysis phase is not effective. What about the sharing of knowledge of domains, you know, in a community? I mean, it it seems to me that that would be beneficial to all. Uh, Could you clarify what you mean within a community? Sure. Well, okay. Um, Let's take uh, the audio recording community, for example, uh, or the digital audio, right? If if I wanted to write software for digital audio or healthcare or anything like that, wouldn't it be beneficial to sort of have a place where uh, where domain knowledge uh, that's a little bit closer to the developer could exist and be shared? Right. Well, um Okay, I'm not sure I completely understand the question, but let me talk about There used to be a there used to be a site, I don't know if there is uh, called biztalk.org where they would share um digital formats of XML files for documents that exist in vertical industries. That's a really good example of domain specific um you know th- instruments and documentation that that works for a particular domain with the express uh, benefit of being closer to the computer. So a developer who's starting out, you know, in in writing healthcare software doesn't have to reinvent the schemas for document types and things like that. Um, doesn't you know? Maybe there's algorithms and code uh, already up there. You, you know what I'm saying? Oh, okay. And no, this also get gets you. into, when you talk about accounting, the generally accepted accounting practices. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so um, in the case of these XML schemas, in fact, uh, there's a pattern in my book called uh, Published Language, which uh, which I endeavored to describe that kind of thing that people do and, and when it's valuable. And it, it sometimes is. Uh, also, the... Uh, these ideas of of using, let's say, a standard accounting uh, kind of model instead of the you're right. It doesn't make sense to reinvent the wheel all the time. L- let me try to clarify, though, why I tend to warn people so much against things like the enterprise model or uh, industry standard models of their domain. Because the the two examples that you gave are both cases where such a thing might actually be useful and right. valuable, but um, it, it it so often doesn't work. And and here is I think why. 
Uh, models fall, I think, uh, subparts or subdomains uh, tend to fall into three categories, broad categories that I put them into. One is kind of generic subdomains. These are the parts that uh, probably a lot of other companies would have. There's might be quite similar to yours. Uh, accounting is probably a generic subdomain for most businesses. And uh, maybe um, within sound, maybe the uh, just the sound structure itself might be kind of generic. Right. Uh, whereas uh, maybe the way that you put things together is less generic. Then there's the core domain. That's the thing that really makes you special. And uh, in this part, you need to be differentiated. You, your, your whole point of making this software, instead of, let's say, buying some off-the-shelf software, is that there's something special about you. Something distinctive, yeah. Something distinctive. In fact, if there's not, then you should just buy some software. Seriously, it will cost less. Uh, or without a doubt, it'll cost less. Yeah. And um, so, so given then that this core part is distinctive almost by definition, then what happens, what I've seen happen is that these, um, either the enterprise models or the uh, industry standard models, they tend to not confine themselves to the generic subdomains. I think if they did, that we would have more success in that area. I think that um, published shared models of generic subdomains could be useful, but the uh, problem is that most of these schemes overreach and try to solve the core problem, and that is specifically uh, needs to be different for different kinds of companies. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it makes me, it rings a bell to me when I've been in the whiteboard room and they, and the question comes up, why aren't we just buying this? Which is really another way of saying, what's distinctive about what we're doing here? Because that's really the core thing. Yes. And that's what I usually say is, why are you not buying this? And, and sometimes I say it in the sense that means you should be buying this. Yes. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> it's a legitimate question, though. Yeah, but the, but it, sometimes I'm asking it to say, no, actually, why are you not buying this? Because if we can find the answer to that, we'll know where we should be focusing our modeling efforts. And anything that isn't directly related to that, to the answer to that question, we really should try to buy if we can. Absolutely. And and suddenly, and, and even if you do find those distinctive features, then you suddenly say, okay, that's where our distinctions lie. These things are the same. We can buy those parts and integrate them into what we're building. That's right. That's what I like to do. And also, this basic issue of whether to build or buy is very related to how you deal with your legacy. If you have this legacy system and you say, oh, this legacy system is a lodestone around our neck and we need to move on. We need to re-implement this thing because all these new initiatives that we want uh, are being held back by it. And then I see people saying, okay, let's make a plan to rebuild this legacy system block by block, layer by layer. And I say, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. And the reason is because 90% of what you're working on will be generic or will be something supporting the higher functions, but will not be that core, the thing right. that actually pushed you to this decision. You need to start, go back, say, what was it that pushed us to really need to phase this legacy out? Or what is it that's really bothering us here? Let's focus on that and figure out a strategy that will let us build that part, will let us do all our modeling work on that part, and rely on the legacy system to do all the other parts, because it works, and 90%, I guarantee you, 90% of what it does is not that critical part that is pushing you toward this expensive decision. But to coexist with the legacy is going to call for a lot of extra integration work. 
you probably build anti-corruption layers between you and the legacy system that might be as complex, in fact, as the software you're building, the new software. Right. But Typically, legacy systems, the big things they're missing are these rules of consistency that uh, become so important to protect yourself against as you move forward. Well, that's true. And also, they are based on an old way of thinking. And so even if they're very nicely designed, they're not going to be based on the way you want to think now. So you have to put a layer in there, a, trans a translation layer, but it's more than a translation layer because it's so defensive in tone. Well, yeah, and... And the reality is it is possible to build applications that don't get to this situation. And you I know you talk a bit about this with the whole component uh, pluggable frameworks and, and things like this. But if the, the odds are the app's not like that and you've got to contain it into a component of the overall framework. Right. And, and uh, things like um, SOA are very helpful in this way because... Now that this has become such a common paradigm, you can say, okay, let's represent the parts of the legacy that we need to draw upon. Let's make a set of services that are whose API is in terms of our new model is is the way we wish if we if we could just wish a new component into existence that would do the part that we want the legacy to do for us, but would be expressed in this nice new way. Let's let's make that the the API of some services, and then write a complicated translation layer, an anti-corruption layer, that will actually interact with that messy old legacy system to make it seem like this service is implemented that way. You can see that this is. Um, Often, usually, I would say, but not always possible. It's and a tough part I have as a developer when you talk about those kinds of layers is this really is ultimately throwaway code. This yeah. is stuff that only exists because I've built it as an interface between this old system. If we got rid of the old system, I would not need this code anymore. That's true, although you won't get rid of the old system, so you won't get rid of the new system. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I'm, I'm going to dilute my own argument here, too, which is to say that Every new system I build, I probably want to push through that layer to make sure it's compliant. It's really like a schema validator for my business roles. That could be. But I think the value that I see in it is that it lets you start in the important place. It, if you were to – let's suppose that someday you do phase out that legacy system. Well, then, okay, at that point, you can get rid of the anti-corruption layer. And so – the uh, the labor that was spent on that uh, will not be represented in terms of any existing running software. Right. But what it will be represented in is the fact that you got that critical software years earlier than you would have otherwise done. And done, in business, and time, timing is everything. So what I'm describing is a way to... Build the valuable part now, and then fill in if you need to, but I say you probably won't. Yeah, odds are you're going to find out eventually that is good enough. That is good enough. And in fact, now there's a new, there's a new urgent, interesting, important thing. And so let's build another set of these weird translators with nice service interfaces and Let's build some interesting new system on top of that. Now, over time, the part of the legacy system that needs to be changed will have kind of been delegated to these newer parts. And so what we find then is that the legacy system, although it's ugly, is quite stable. And so it just sits there and runs, and it's surrounded by these nicer service interfaces so that new software is more and more based on these newer interfaces. And, of course, the new software presumably gets bigger. So it's just one of those little pockets, a little component of the overall system. But if you uh, keep reinvesting in these 
sort of lower layers of the legacy, rebuilding them, you get you you never get to the really valuable stuff. Yeah, you're too busy maintaining the plumbing to get to the new fountain. How's that for a metaphor? We're coming up to the end of our hour here, <laughs> Eric, right. and I'm wondering, I, I think you've really sort of painted a picture here where domain-driven design seems very agile. It helps us focus on the new things that are most important, and and I've often thought that it was presented as the more of the the carefully planned approach. Yeah, I do think that that is the way most people perceive modeling approaches. Um, but I think they haven't really thought through the implications of what I mean when I say domain-driven design. I didn't choose that title lightly. Domain-driven design means that you think about the domain and you really understand it and what is important in that domain and what does it mean, and then you make your decisions based on that. If you truly do that, then you're not thinking much about plumbing. You're thinking about what is this urgent little... Um, business advantage that the that the marketing people have identified right that if we move now we can grab this new area and that's the agility of a business and a, and a domain driven design then would follow that agility so it's not following necessarily the software agility thing so much as business agility but business agility is focused primarily on seeking and grabbing new business opportunities, uh, responding to problems that have cropped up in the business. It's very driven by that. And to have a nice, elegant uh, platform deep down underneath isn't so important if you if you can create a... Um, a platform up on top that you can actually work on. And and, and I don't propose that you can make nice, elegant models uh, sitting straight on top of a messy legacy system. Right. That's why I said that you might very easily spend as much time on that anti-corruption layer, as much effort on that, as you did on the new system. All right. Well, Eric, uh, thanks for... Uh Thanks for joining us for this hour. It's it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's not it's not an area of my expertise, so I I tend to be quiet and let Richard take over in these cases. But I do appreciate it, and I'm sure our listeners do too. Well, I enjoyed it. Okay, Eric. The book is named uh, Domain Driven Design: Tackling Complexity in Software. Eric Evans has been our guest, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a